Sometimes I think it must be tough being a middle child. Is there any middle children out there? A couple, yeah. I don't really know. I'm an oldest child of three. Uh, so, I, you know, being the oldest has its benefits. You get to do everything first. It also has its drawbacks. You usually get an overactive responsibility complex. So I don't know what's ulcers and things like that. But Samara, our third child, just turned four weeks old, and I'm noticing some subtle differences in our family dynamics. Uh, now, Sophia here is our oldest, and uh, she's in first grade now, and so she, you think Samara's pretty cute and everything, right? She's okay. But I mean, Sophia's kind of in first grade. She's got homework every night and soccer practice, and she's got her friends, and so not that big a deal. Stella is in the middle. She's three and a half, and she's at that stage in life where she's discovering her power. Uh, she just recently been, uh, is able to now turn off the hall light switch on her tiptoes. And let me tell you, that's a big deal. Because her mantra is, I can do it all by self. Okay? So you just, she's flexing her power. And yet she's vying for attention too. She's a little too young to be going to everyday, all day school and have soccer and all that. She's a little too old to be coddled all day. And plus, you know, Samara kind of takes up... Uh, if we don't coddle her, she will die. So we kind of have to take care of her, right? So, so I've been taking special care to do some, some outings with Stella to make sure that you know, she feels valued. But I think the very fact that I have to be intentional about that shows there's probably at least a perceived deficit there. There's a perceived change in that. In the biblical narrative, there are three main patriarchs. Now, of course, there's Abraham, who, uh, you know, is maybe the most famous. He and Sarah are called the mother and father of faith. Abraham and Sarah get lots of run in the Bible. In fact, chapters 12 of Genesis, chapter 12 through 23, all about how God is interacting with Abraham and Sarah. Uh, then he's in parts of 24 and chapter 25 as well, all about Abraham and Sarah. The second patriarch is Abraham's son, Isaac, and the third is Isaac's son, Jacob. Now, Jacob, Jacob gets lots of press. He's a major player in chapters 25, and then again in 27 through 35, and he shows up in significant ways in the rest of Genesis, chapters 37 through 50. So you've got number one, Abraham, and number three, Jacob, getting all this press. And then there's poor Isaac, the middle patriarch. He doesn't get much play in the Bible. Last week, uh, James Matichik preached a wonderful sermon on Genesis 25. And it starts off with a little bit about Isaac. Talks about how he prayed for Rebecca for 20 years that she would be able to have children. But then the whole story turns to the children, to Jacob and Esau. And how Esau, the, el the eldest, comes in famished and sells his birthright for a bowl of stew. Or maybe it was a whole pot. I mean, let's give him some credit. But anyway, it was just stew. And it leaves you wondering at the end of that chapter, what is the significance of the birthright in the first place? And what on earth happened to Isaac? Poor middle patriarch, doesn't get any stories. Well, in today's text, the middle patriarch Isaac gets nearly a whole chapter to himself. 33 out of 34 verses is all about Isaac and Rebekah and God. Would you pray with me as we enter this text? Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your supervision of the actual events that happened, of how those stories were passed down, of how they were collected, preserved, and how they continue to change lives through the power of your Holy Spirit. 
I pray, Lord, that you would resurrect this text in our hearts this evening. That you would breathe life. That it would be more than a history lesson or more than a story. But it would be life-changing, your word, for us today. Amen. So what I'm going to do in Genesis 26 is take it in chunks. We'll read a part, kind of look at it a little bit. And uh, the first section is Genesis 26, 1 through 5. It goes like this. Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land which I will tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I have swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and I will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me, and kept my charge, my commandments, and my statutes, and my laws. Okay, before we dig into the content of this passage, I want to make a few observations. Anytime you tell a story about a past event, you have to choose what you're going to say and what you're going to leave out, right? So you come home from work, and your spouse or your roommate or someone at the other end of the phone, you're talking to them to say, how was your day today, right? You certainly don't expect that they're going to recount every conversation they had, every thought they had, the weather, what they ate for breakfast, how many times they went to the bathroom. In fact, if a person did that, or if you do that and people stop asking you how your day was, let me just give you a clue that that's why they stopped asking. Like, nobody wants to know all of those facts. But, and teenagers and men, this is for us, if we want to communicate with some level of love and respect, we should also not respond with nothing or fine to the question, how is your day? That's not very good either. What is expected, I think, is an edited retelling. So probably the underlying question behind how was your day today is I care about you and I want to know what in particular impacted you today. What experiences impacted your life today? Well, all histories do this. Every documentary does this. They have to choose what they're going to say and not say. And the Bible's no different. There are many stories and memories circulating about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And when these stories were organized, there was a reason. One, there's a reason for which stories were told. I mean, we're, I, I don't really care how many times a day Isaac went to the bathroom or, you know, what color his camels were. That doesn't seem to be significant. So I'm glad they didn't put all that in the Bible. It would be a lot bigger. But somebody chose, the Lord helped choose what stories are in our Bible. And B, there's a reason for the order in which these stories are in the Bible. See, as we continue reading in this chapter 26, we're going to realize that this story about Isaac and Rebekah actually comes before the story we read last week about Jacob and Esau. In fact, Jacob and Esau aren't even born yet in this story. So it kind of begs the question, why on earth... 
did they put this story between a story about Jacob and Esau and another story about Jacob and Esau. So you see how that works? Chapter 25, story about Jacob and Esau. Chapter 26, story about Isaac. It's like a flashback, like on Lost. Anyway, okay. So why this flashback? If the, sto- if the story were just a novel, by the way, like a piece of literature, fiction, you just get it off, you might ask the literary question, well, the flashback must do something to move the plot forward. Now, we're going to see it actually does move the plot forward, but because this is also the Bible, we ask, what is the theological reason for putting this story in between the other two? With that question in mind, let's look at the content. There's a famine in the land. Hey, just like what happened to Abraham, like twice, chapter 12 and chapter 20 of Genesis, there's a famine in the land. The narrator makes it clear that this is a different famine. It says it's, it's a different famine than the one that happened to Abraham. And that it's, it's an actual historical event. And like his father before him, Isaac is a shepherd or a nomad. Now what happens is, in, in years of plenty, is these shepherds and nomads would dig cisterns. Um, and what would happen is when it rains, they fill up with water. And it lasts a while until the next rain. Sometimes dew would help with that process as well. But in a famine, the cisterns dry up. And usually where there are wells with living water, with spring water, that's where communities form. And in these regional communities around the good wells, they're usually run by kings. So this was the case. Isaac is out with his pasture land and, and a famine hits. And so now there's no, his wells are no good. They're cistern type wells. They're not living water wells. So he goes to Gerar where Abimelech is the regional king. Because they probably have some irrigation. They have some food for Isaac's crops. Now, this Abimelech might sound familiar to you if you're thinking about the whole story of Genesis. It's the same name as the king that Abraham runs into in Genesis chapter 20. But it's a different man. So it's still King Abimelech, but it's a different King Abimelech. And and Abimelech is not actually a personal name. It's a title. So in Hebrew, Melech is king. It means king, Melech. So Abimelech means father of a king. And so it was like the royal title that would get passed down. So it's kind of like uh, if you think Egypt and you know the title Pharaoh, well there's lots of different people who were Pharaoh over those, um, year, those that, that dynasty, right? So there's lots of different Pharaohs but they're all called Pharaoh. Same thing with Abimelech. Speaking of Egypt, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, comes to Isaac for the first recorded time in his life And tells him specifically, do not go to Egypt. He doesn't want Isaac to leave the promised land, the land that he is going to give uh, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac. So don't go to Egypt. It would be really tempting, by the way, to go to Egypt because in a famine, Egypt is where? You're right by the Nile. And that Nile River, that fertile valley there, I mean, only in the worst famines do you have problems in Egypt. So a lot of people would travel down to Egypt. And God is saying, don't do that. Stay in Gerar, and I'm going to bless you. And it's here, in the promised land, that God speaks to Isaac personally and transfers the blessing that he gave to Abraham on to Isaac. The key word for this chapter is blessing. And there's going to be a quiz. 
What is the key word? Yes, blessing. He's transferring the blessing. So in in Genesis 12, God chooses Abraham and Sarah to come out of their their land in Ur of the Chaldeans. They travel a thousand miles. He says, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to bless you so that you will then be a blessing to the nations. Okay? I'm going to give you stuff and good life so that you will be generous and give to other people in my name. And also, I am going to take you and I'm going to make a nation, of, a sea of people through your descendants. Okay? Well, Isaac, the son of Abraham, now gets that blessing bestowed upon him. It's transferred to him. God promises to give Isaac the surrounding lands, to multiply his offspring, to outnumber the stars of the sky. All because God swore an oath to Abraham, and Abraham obeyed. Here's what happened. So Isaac lived in Gerar. And when the men of the place asked about his wife... He said, she's my sister. For he was afraid to say she's my wife, thinking, the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she's beautiful. Now it came about, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, literally, in the Hebrew, playing with his wife in a, you know, adult way. And Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. How then did you say she's my sister? And Isaac said to him, Well, uh, I was afraid. I I thought I might die on account of her. And Abimelech said, What is this you've done to us? One of the people might have easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon all of us. So Abimelech charged all the people, saying, He who touches this man's wife will surely be put to death. Okay, right, let's just start with the positive here. God says, don't go to Egypt, stay here. And Isaac does that. Yay, Isaac. Really good. But then he becomes afraid. And the men start to notice Rebecca. It says here that she's beautiful. In chapter 23, it says, and basically she's hot. Like it says, she's very, very beautiful. And it makes a big statement how incredibly gorgeous this Rebecca is. And um, so... When the men ask Jake or um, Isaac, sorry, ask Isaac about her, like, "Hey, is she available?" He he gets scared. He says, oh, "She's my sister." Of course, where have we heard that before? Right, like father, like son. Abraham does this twice in his life, recorded in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, and here we see Isaac doing this as well. You know, if I hadn't prefaced with that story. When I, usually when the names Abraham and Sarah come up, it's in a positive light. You know, Abraham and Sarah are thought of by the church and by the New Testament as the mother and the father of faith. You know, Paul references them all the time. They're all through the book of Hebrews as examples of faith. It's like we, we remember them um, with, in hindsight as, as, as the mother and father of faith. But when you actually look at their story... Man, twice Abraham tells foreign kings that Sarah is his sister to save his own neck. One time they try and uh, make a family that, w- that wasn't God's way, and they had Abraham sleep with Hagar, who was Sarah's handmaiden. I mean, they, 
They didn't always act in faith, and yet they're known as people of faith. And, and I think part of that is because the title of faithful, it can't just be inherited. Faith is only really faith when it's tested. See, Isaac was raised in a family of faith. He rides the coattails of his family's faith. He probably grew up with these stories of God, uh, of how God rescued Abraham and Sarah, and how, I mean, even his own life is a miracle. I mean, they, they didn't have Isaac till they were 100 years old, till Abraham was 100 years old. So Isaac is raised in a family of faith. Even his marriage to Rebekah is a result of Abraham's faithfulness, and Abraham's servant's faithfulness to go back to his homeland and bring her back. So Isaac is the recipient of all these actions of faith. And so he has the idea in his head, and so God tells him, Hey Isaac, stay here in Gerar, don't go down to Egypt. It's kind of an easy, okay, I can do that. But then, true faith is put to the test. And as James said well last week, he said, God doesn't have spiritual grandchildren. God doesn't have spiritual grandchildren. Each person, each generation must find out what their own faith is made of. So is, is faith simply an idea? Or is it faith in something that your parents believed? Or is faith our own? Because we have experienced the power and the grace. And what's the key word? Blessing, experience the blessing of God. Are we experiencing the faith-building action of God in our lives, or are we playing it so safe that God really doesn't have to do all that much? Which, by the way, if you're breathing and your heart is beating, God is willing that. So, <laughs> He's kind of already doing a lot of things that we don't give Him credit for. But, um, you know, sometimes we play it so safe, we don't give... Our faith and opportunity, you won't give God an opportunity to really show up. Are we living in such a way that our faith is tested, that our faith in God is necessary? Put it another way, if our faith in God isn't being tested from time to time, and hear me, I don't think like we should always be anxious and like, oh my gosh, my world's falling apart every second. But I mean, if we're not semi-regularly, like needing God in our lives, I wonder then if we're living by something other than faith in God. Just a question. So Isaac's faith in God faltered. And his reflex for self-preservation kicks in, and he lies to save his own skin. Now ironically, this is kind of a side note, uh, the, the pagan people of Gerar, I mean, they're not followers of Yahweh. They have, and he expects them to be totally morally corrupt, to take his wife, to kill him for his wife. They totally show him up. I mean, so ironic. Because the, here they are, once they realize that she's a married woman, uh, the king gives this decree, like, we don't want, nobody touch her. In fact, if you touch her, I'm going to, it's a, it's a federal, it's a capital offense. What's the key word? All right, now check this out. Blessing. He has just lied. Isaac has just lied. He just got caught in his lie. And the pagan king shows him himself to be more morally, um, have more moral integrity than Isaac in this case. It seems like Isaac ought to get 
burned, you know, like I have some consequences. Now check this out, verse 12. Now Isaac sowed in the land, you know, seeds, and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and continued to grow richer or Literally, greater. Gadol is the word. It's, it's great size. It kind of encompasses wealth and status and respect and honor. All of that in one word. He became richer until he became very wealthy. For he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household so that the Philistines envied him. Now, all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines stopped all of them up by putting earth in them. So then Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are too powerful for us. And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. So Abimelech has now kicked him out of his little regional kingdom, and now he's out back in the wilderness. Okay, and here's what happens. Then Isaac dug again the wells of water, which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham. So the Philistines stopped all these wells up, so he starts undigging them to try and uh, get water again. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, The water is ours. So he named the well Esek, because they contended with him. So he left that one, and he dug another well, and they quarreled over it too, and so he named it Shitna. He moved away from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, so he named it Rehoboth. For he said, At last the Lord has made room for us, and we will be fruitful in the land. Check this out. Then he went up from there to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him that same night and said this, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he will build an altar there, or he built an altar there, and called upon the name of the Lord, which means Isaac responded in worship. And he pitched his tent there, and Isaac's servants dug a well. <laughs> so, so let me get this straight. Isaac lies about this, puts his wife in jeopardy, her honor. He puts the whole future of this descendant line in jeopardy, gets called to the carpet by a pagan king, and he gets blessed. In what kind of economy is a supposed man of God act unfaithfully to his wife, to his country, and to his God, and come out blessed besides politicians? Seriously. This is not fair. This is messed up. Not only did Isaac get away with this lie, but he comes out amazingly wealthy, abundant crops, livestock. In fact, he grew so rich that Abimelech becomes jealous and fearful of his power and kicks him out of his land. Like father, like son, that's exactly what happened to Abraham. And I think that that is partially the point. Earlier, I asked us to think about why this story... This flashback, why is it a flashback? Why is it placed between these stories of, of Jacob and Esau? And I think, of course, the secret is in the, the key word, which is what? Blessing. That's right. The blessing, 
the promise of blessing has been transferred to Isaac. The blessing of God cannot be revoked. Think about that for a minute. I mean, in, in the next chapter, in chapter 27, we're going to get to that next week. We're going to see Rebekah and Jacob conspire against Esau. How would you like it if your mom was against you? That's just messed up. But anyway, so they're going to conspire against Esau and trick Jacob into blessing or trick Isaac into blessing Jacob instead of blessing Esau. That would be kind of a mean thing to do in just a normal storyline, but because this flashback is here, oh my gosh, now we recognize the tension has built. Look how big of a blessing they are cheating Esau out of. It's not just a dad saying, son, you get like the, the lion's share of the inheritance, you know, a few goats and stuff. It is the blessing of God. The irrevocable blessing of God. So it builds tension in that story. But what really blows my mind is that this story, they, they waited to put it after chapter 25. Sure, it was a rotten thing for Esau to trade his birthright for a bowl of stew. But now we see what's actually at stake. Not just a birthright, but the blessing of God. Notice the difference in terms. Esau sold his what? His birthright. As if his birthright was something that he could just buy and sell. As if it was a right. I think that that's so often how we think of the world. We're concerned about our rights. We earn good things in life, and if bad things happen, well, other people cause those. If we don't earn something, we shouldn't be allowed to enjoy it. But that is not God's economy. Because God is not fair. Hallelujah. God is not fair. Okay, check this out. I'm going to finish up this chapter. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with his advisor Ahuzat and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. I, I was going to read this whole thing, but I, I can't pass this up. Think about the Gospels and how many times Jesus is doing the things that only God can do. And Gentile people all see clearly that there's something special about Jesus, that they drop their whole lives and follow him, while the so-called religious leaders are blind, they don't see clearly. Here we have a pagan king, Abimelech, his advisors, they come and it says, we see clearly that the Lord has been with you. Friends, do we see clearly? I'm, oh, write that one down, because that's a, still a question for us to ask every day. Um, so we said, let there now be an oath between us, even between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we've not touched you and have, not, and have done you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. Well, that's kind of a fudge, isn't it? But um, uh, anyway, you are now the blessed of the Lord. And then Isaac made a feast for them, and they ate and they drank. And in the morning they arose and exchanged oaths, and then Isaac sent them away. And they departed from him in peace. 
Now it came about on the same day that Isaac's servants came in and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, We have found water. And so he called it Sheba, for therefore the name of the city is Be'er Sheba. Be'er means pit or, or well. Sheba means oath or covenant. Uh, so Beersheba, the well of the covenant. And it says Beersheba's there to this day, and indeed it is. I think, Tim, did you go there? Yeah. There you go. So. Our God, who is very unfair, works out of an economy of blessing, an economy of gift. In this story, we see four major aspects of this economy of blessing. First, there's a material aspect. Isaac struggles with his faith, and yet God blesses him with abundance such that he is wealthy. Now, there are some splinter groups in the church throughout the world that teach wrongly that if you have enough faith, you will be healthy and you will be wealthy. That's bad theology. If you look at Jesus, who I think is pretty faithful, the Apostle Paul, who is canonized in Scripture, these guys were not always healthy and not always wealthy. In fact, if you're faithful, you might end up on a cross or, cru- or, or, or killed. I think Paul was beheaded. Peter crucified upside down. Okay, so uh, they weren't always wealthy, although Paul, you know, sometimes he feasted and sometimes there was famine and he was content with everything in between. The book of Job is a great corrective to health and wealth theology. Okay, so faithfulness does not always equate to health and wealth. You're not necessarily going to have a new Mercedes and 10 vacation homes. But I think that sometimes we have so overreacted to what's wrong about health and wealth that sometimes when good things come our way, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel guilty. And I wonder in the back of my mind, okay, things are going really good for a while. When's the shoe going to drop? Right? And I think that is unhealthy for me to think that way. That's unhealthy when we get stuck in that trap. Because we also have a father who is the author of every good thing. The Apostle Paul wrote in his first letter to Timothy, fourth chapter, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. The point is, every good thing comes from God. It's a gift. We receive it with open arms. We don't feel bad about it. We don't, oh, when's it going to get taken away? Because guess what? It's a gift. It's not ours in the, in the first place, right? Abimelech says, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there now be an oath between us. See, Abimelech recognizes that, God, that Isaac's wealth, his status, his blessing, must come from his God. Because, hey, he kicked, he kicked Isaac out. He kicked him out in the wilderness, and this guy just keeps finding wells. And even when Abimelech's herders take the wells away, it's like he just keeps finding better ones. And finally he gets it. He sees clearly, oh man, this guy's God is for real. I'm going to like make an oath with him. I, this guy's powerful. And if you notice, 
Then Isaac is the one who, who sets the feast for Abimelech and his advisors. The one who gives the meal is the one in power. And then the text says that Isaac sent him and his men away. You don't send kings away. Like They tell you when they're going to leave. Unless someone greater than the king has arrived. All right, so Abimelech recognizes this quality. It's not necessarily about Isaac. It's that his God is blessing him. By the way, that's part of the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham. I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. Now Abimelech is blessed. Not only did he share in a meal, but he's blessed because now he is an ally with one of God's men, one of God's families. Of course, not all good things are material. The bumper sticker is true. The best things in life are not things. But let's not forget the material things can be good too. I bet you're glad that you're wearing clothes right now. I'm glad you're wearing clothes right now. And that we have this wonderful facility to meet in. And that we probably have eaten today. And if you haven't, there's lots of food for dinner and for you to, to eat. So, I mean, there, material things are, nece- are necessary. They are good. Um, we learn from Abraham and Isaac's story that if you have an abundance, as smart and hardworking as you are, as financially savvy as you might be, you don't deserve what you have. In fact, I would wager to guess that if your life were an open book for everyone to read, people would say about every one of us, you don't deserve what you have. If you could see the thoughts uh, in my heart, you know, you'd say, you don't deserve. Thank God that he's not fair and then share. That's kind of, that's, Kind of the deal with this blessing aspect. Thank God that he's not fair. Oh, we get so much more than we deserve. And then share it. I had a professor once who had mentioned Jesus' teaching uh, in in the Gospel of Matthew where he said, you know, everyone who uh, leaves his life behind to follow me will have mansions and all of this wealth in this life. And you always wonder, what do you do with that? And he was like, it's totally true. Like, most professors I know are not extremely wealthy. And this guy was, is no different. Uh, but he, in serving the Lord, he's met people with mansions. And he loves to sail. He, there's no way this guy could afford a sailboat. He's from Australia. And so, but he knows a lot of people with sailboats. And they invite him to go in the summer on certain race things and stuff. And so it's kind of true. Like you don't, it doesn't have to be yours. But when God blesses the community and we share with one another, it's a blessing to all. So... And the first aspect of the blessing of God is material. The second is vocational. God bails Abraham and Isaac, uh, he bails them out even when they make sinful mistakes because overall they are about his work. They are included in his plan. They are the bearers of the covenant. And when you're a follower of Jesus, you are covered by the covenant. Not the denomination that we're in, but by God's covenant, by His blessing. Part of the blessing is to have a reason, I think, to get up in the morning. That's one of my favorite things about the gospel, is that it's not just for tomorrow. It's not just for after I die. But it gives me a reason. Like if your whole life is just about the American dream and like getting, getting the house and the kids and the cars. And, and even, if you, even if you make your life philanthropic, you're like, I'm going to do all these good things for people. Eventually you hit a wall. When you realize, gosh, if there's not more than just me and them and this place, 
is kind of miserable. It gets to a miserable existence. But what God does is includes us in His rescue mission to the world, gives us a promise for tomorrow, yes, oh, thank you for that, but also gives us value and reason to get up and go to work, get up, be a mom and dad, get up, be a good friend, get up, be a good citizen, get up, be a great grandparent or a retired person or you know, a child, whatever it is. He gives us a reason, he gives us vocation. You are invited, invited into the blessing to bless others in your life for the glory of Jesus. Doing your work unto Jesus, loving your friends unto Jesus as if they were Jesus. And that's what the blessing is all about. So we've got material, we've got vocational. Third, we see this blessing of God in relational terms. In the beginning of the story, Isaac was subservient to Abimelech. But through God's blessing, he now becomes one of, uh, the one that Abimelech seeks out. It's nothing, again, inherent about Isaac. Like I'm sure he's a nice guy and everything. But it's because God's blessing is on him. He's a, he's a carrier of the covenant. And what that does... It breaks down walls between other people. He gets favor with other people. Not for his own honor or glory. We're reading about the story that Abimelech's eyes were opened to the things of God. And what he does with that is his own business. But that's part of, part of the calling, I think, is that we are here to, uh, to break down walls that divide people. Uh, we've been reconciled to God, so we are sent out as reconcilers. Right? And this is, of course, closely related to the fourth aspect of blessing, peace with God. In the Abraham and Isaac stories, we see that sinfulness and lapses of faith were not enough to break relationship with God. God stayed true to his end of the covenant even though Abraham and Isaac and Jacob certainly won't, uh, haven't. What's the key word? Yes. These four aspects of blessing, material, vocational, relational wholeness with other people, and relational wholeness with God. The Bible has a word for those four aspects when they're all put together. It's called shalom. Shalom. The fullness of peace of God. You know, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news of the gospel of God. He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Turn away from the way you've been seeing things and thinking about things and living after things. And believe in this good news. Because I'm telling you, the kingdom of God is here. And it's a kingdom of what? Of shalom. Of the four aspects of blessing coming together. Over a thousand years after Isaac, Jesus came into Galilee making that proclamation. And brothers and sisters, hear the good news. God is not fair. We have sinned and fallen short of His glory. We have failed and still fail to live faithfully. We have corrupted the material world and we have viewed vocation selfishly from time to time, I am sure. We have failed to be peacemakers and yet the unfair God put on flesh and dwelt among us. The unfair God took on my punishment and yours on the cross. The unfair God absorbed all that evil could do to him and defeated death, rose from the grave. The unfair God calls you blessed when you are poor in spirit 
And when you recognize your need for him, he calls us blessed when we place our trust in his grace. Will you receive the key word? Will you receive the blessing? That's the only stance uh, for the blessing of God. It's not something we can grasp. It's not something we can earn. It's not something that we go and take. It's hands open, palms up, receiving. Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you that you are not fair. Thank you that you do not give me and us what we truly deserve. I pray, Lord, it's just the multi-directions. Uh, in the direction, Lord, for those who just have a hard time for receiving that in the first place, take this example of Isaac and Rebecca, Abraham, Sarah. Make it come alive for us, Lord. Help us to trust in the blessing. Lord, for those who have, who have received and said thank you, and said uh, it feels good to be alive, it feels good to be forgiven. Lord, I pray that you would then help us to, uh, to be generous, to be graceful with other people as we've received grace. Thank you that you're not fair. We receive your blessing, forgiveness, and new life afresh. Amen.